Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Starting to board the Airlines Confidential Weekly Flight to Airline Land, I'm Ben Baldanza and welcome aboard. And I'm Chris Chimes. Thanks for the download. As always, we've got a lot to cover, but first, as we record this, Hurricane Ian continues to make its way up the East Coast. Whether you are in Florida or any other part of the Atlantic seaboard, Ben and I hope you and your family are safe, and we are certainly thinking about all those who have been impacted by the devastation. And Ben, we're going to start with Ian's impact on aviation. Florida plays such an important role in the U.S. airport system, and the way this storm moved, it really affected Miami, Lauderdale, Orlando, Tampa, and Jacksonville across Florida, and then Charlotte on the weekend as it moved up through the Carolinas. By my calculation, well over 5,000 flights have been canceled. How would you grade the industry's performance during this past week or so? I would actually grade the industry as performing fairly well, given such a terrible situation. With hurricanes, and I know them well, having lived in Florida for 11 years, there's two things. you got to be concerned about what's actually going to happen and what could happen. And for airplanes and people, you want to make sure that they're not going to be stuck in a position where they can't be recovered. So in many cases, it's moving people out and moving planes out before the hurricane hits. And in that sense, I think the airlines did a pretty good job helping what they could in advance. I also think there's no way you can shut down Florida the way this hurricane did and not affect all the airlines in a really big way. So every airline is going to be talking about this in their next earnings calls and putting numbers to it about what this was worth to their earnings for the quarter. And I don't blame them. And for many of these towns and cities, who rely on snowbirds and rely on tourism, it may be a long while before they can build that back as well. So even though the hurricane's gone, the effect of Ian in Florida could stay around for quite a long time. Overall now, as the hurricane moves up to the mid-Atlantic and such, and you have the Carolinas, and even Virginia and the coastline in there, it's kind of the same thing where it's getting the airplanes out, making sure the people are as safe as you can, and then figuring out what's really going to happen and what are the short and long-term implications. Airlines don't always do everything that well, and they certainly haven't done everything perfectly here, but I actually give them strong marks for reacting quickly, reacting decisively, and not sort of thinking about, well, what is this going to cost us right now? But what do we need to do right now to keep first our people safe, second our equipment safe, and then we'll figure that last piece out. So overall, I think they've done pretty well so far. Yeah, I would echo that. And you know, where they could, it looked like they were giving extra lift into some cities to get more people out where they could. And um, certainly Tampa and Orlando airports reopened pretty quickly after the storm had passed and the, the damage had been ass assessed and it was rather minimal to the airports, it looks like. So, you know, Fort Myers, at least Fort Myers Beach seems to have been kind of wiped out. And so... You know, getting those airports back up and running is going to be critical to the disaster recovery and relief efforts um, to get goods and services in and get people in and out. So um, 
we'll continue to watch this, but again, where we're thinking of everyone that's been impacted. And then, Ben, we've talked a few times about the Boom Supersonic Initiative. They've secured some aircraft orders, American Airlines most recently. They even got something of a puff piece on 60 Minutes earlier this year. But for all their fancy talk, they can't seem to get anyone to manufacture an engine for their aircraft. And by anyone, I mean any aircraft engine manufacturer. They're not going to just have anyone manufacture it. Rolls-Royce being the latest to step away from this. So, Ben, your son Enzo, I think, is a sophomore in high school. Are we going to see a boom commercial flight before he graduates with his PhD? Well, who knows? I'm, I'm worried first about the bachelor's degree, but we'll, <laughs> see, but we'll see. But my guess is, no, he won't. And the reason I say that is there's just some practical realities here. Airframe manufacturers don't drive the engine manufacturers unless they're going to produce a lot of airplanes, right? Boeing can certainly affect what companies like GE and Pratt and Rolls-Royce do, as can Airbus, because they produce so many airplanes. But for Boom to sort of design a plane and then say, sort of, who wants to build an engine for this, I think was a little naive. And it doesn't surprise me that big manufacturers are stepping away. Eventually, they'll get an engine, but it's going to be more expensive than they plan on paying. It may or may not work as well as they want to. And it's going to be at terms that the engine manufacturer can make money selling that engine. So I think there's just a lot of hype in this product. I'd love to see it happen. But I think the number of markets where the several hours improvement in block time is not going to really be justified for the difference and what it's going to cost to get on this thing. So there's a lot of innovation in this industry around EV tolls and and more sustainable technology for airplanes and electric airplanes and all kinds of things. But the boom one, I think, has the least sort of commercial reality attached to it. So if I had a guess, even though I don't know if Enzo's going to get a PhD or not, he's not going to see it happen before he does. Uh, I would agree with your... uh perspective there. I mean, going back to that 60 Minutes story that I watched, I'm sure some of our listeners watched it too. You know, we've talked about this as well, Ben. You know, successful companies and successful startups are most often the ones that solve a problem. And as I watched that story, I still didn't understand what problem they were trying to solve. I I don't think it's a huge problem that it takes you seven hours instead of three hours or four hours to fly from New York to London right now, especially with the trade-off on higher costs to fly supersonic. So, you know, yeah, would it be nicer? Sure, of course. Would a lot of people move to that given the expected price point to be determined? But I, I missed the really compelling problem that was trying to be solved here, and it's showing a bit in the marketplace. We certainly wish them well, and we continue to watch this, but uh, I don't think it's going to be anytime soon. Certainly not before I get a PhD. So, You know, Chris, when I lived in the D.C. area, when you and I worked together at U.S. Airways, I always struggled somewhat with European flights because they were so short. You couldn't realistically eat on the plane and get enough sleep, but you land early in the morning and are expected to hit the ground running. So you almost always had a plan to eat beforehand and then try to get to sleep as soon as the plane's taken off. Then I moved to South Florida and the flights are all a couple hours longer and they made much more sense to me. And so I think about these couple hours saved on some flights and think, I don't even know if it's worth saving that time. In some cases, of course, it's going to. And there will be many people 
who take the time is money sort of mantra and say, if I can get there three hours, I don't want to take five hours to get there. And I understand that. But there has to be a, a commercial reality around that also. Yep. Agreed. Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies that are transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal service to clients on the most critical issues facing our industry today. Sidley combines unmatched depth of experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com aviation for more information. And thanks, as always, to Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, and a specialty finance and investment banking firm, boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. Chris, our regular listeners know that I won't comment on JetBlue legal matters right now since I sit on their board. I want to ask you if you're paying attention to the antitrust trial the Justice Department is pursuing against the American JetBlue Northeast Alliance. Ben, uh, I am kind of sort of paying attention, but frankly, I've been completely focused on Hurricane Ian and its impact on the cruise industry this past 10 days or so. But my quick take is it's not anyone's finest hour. The DOJ arguments are not very coherent. American and JetBlue executives are not very crisp either. You know, American Airlines saying they, quote, lost track of slots they held at JFK, for example. I was like, what's up with that? And then I have to wonder what happens if DOJ wins. Don't they lose leverage in their review of the JetBlue Spirit deal and pursuing any conditions for that deal as part of a eventual approval? Ultimately, I think this is right for a global solution that involves both the merger and the alliance, but I'm not sure how you get there at the moment. So back to your original question, am I paying attention? I guess the answer is yes, but in all fairness, I'm kind of bored. Coming up, a review of the new terminal at Orlando International Airport with our friend Chris Sloan, but not before we thank Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. To help the industry achieve net zero air transport carbon emissions by 2050, Pratt & Whitney is powering more sustainable aviation through smarter technology, cleaner fuels, and greener business. Learn more at prattwhitney.com slash sustainability. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We're glad to have as our guest this week, uh, a regular on Airlines Confidential, our roving reporter, Chris Sloan. Chris, uh, you just recently visited the uh, opening of the new Orlando airport facilities, so we're glad you're with us, and we're glad you can talk about it. Yeah, thank you. It was great. Um, you know, you normally think of Disney World as the happiest place on earth, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, it seemed like the Orlando airport, if you're working for the airport, was the happiest place on earth, so it was a cool trip. Well, why did MCO need a new terminal, Chris? And Who's going to be there and how's it, how does it help this whole airport grow? You know, well, Orlando Airport's a unique place. I mean, it is, um, it's actually the largest airport in the United States. It doesn't have a, a hub carrier. And I think we all know why there's, the, uh, that there's like a, a kind of a Mickey Mouse operation somewhere in the regional area and uh, Universal Studios. And, you know, during the pandemic, when Florida opened quickly, or rather quickly compared to uh, the rest of the you know, the world really, Orlando catapulted to be like the seventh busiest airport, you know, worldwide from 30, you know, one and back in 2019. So, you know, it's the fastest growing airport in the United States, um, or they say, you know, it's the fastest post-pandemic recovery airport in the U.S. and second only in the world. So it even surpassed Las Vegas. So the growth has been explosive and particularly also on the LCC international side. And at the same time, Orlando has been one of those airports that the last time there was a significant terminal expansion was, you know, 20 years ago. 
but it's it's also one of those airports that actually has a pretty good track record and passenger experience feel, but they had well, well, well overwhelmed their capacity. Uh, and particularly, uh, you know, I, I know it's a topic close to your hearts. The low cost carriers have really, you know, been the real leaders in the growth. Southwest is number one, but Spirit and Frontier, have, you know, have added bases and, um, you know, and there's been three new LCCs going there. So the, the place is just, you know, exploding. You know, so they uh, about seven years ago identified this need and have quickly come up to speed with the new South Terminal. And um, the South Terminal, you asked who's serving it. It actually debuted uh, last Tuesday. Um, initially, it's for all the international carriers, uh, virtually all of them. Not everybody's moving. I mean, like Virgin will not move. And any of the, uh, you know, the Sky Team Alliance ones aren't moving. But everybody else is moving over the next uh, two weeks. And so there's 15 gates, but 20 positions primarily serving international, but also JetBlue. Um, I think you've heard of that airline, Ben, right? I know something about them. They're kind of a, uh, you know, really kind of a cool little upstart thing out of New York. But, uh, you know, they obviously have a huge operation and base there, and they are going to be the major uh, tenant for domestic uh, travel. And, of course, if the merger happens, um, at that point, JetBlue is number five in the market, with Spirit is number two, becomes the dominant carrier there. So JetBlue was supposed to actually move uh, Tuesday, uh, in a couple of days, but due to the hurricane, um, they've delayed that now a couple of weeks. So that's kind of what's happening. And uh, and they're backfilling the, uh, it's not like they're shutting down any of the old terminals. You know, they have that very unique airside, landside configuration uh, by the train, with the train. But so when the international carriers and JetBlue uh, move out, uh, those existing gates are being backfilled. Um, they cannot get enough. In fact, uh, the Orlando Airport Authority is already going in front of the board to get an additional expansion underway. They've already designed this to be double the size of what, of what it's going to be, to double the size you know, going forward in, in short order. It's so going to add about 12 million passenger capacity to where they are. And, and the thing I did want to add, I, I know I'm going on about it, is that when the original terminal was first conceived, it was actually going to be additionally 20 gates, and they pulled it back to 15 during the pandemic. And so now they're already going ahead, even before they talk about doubling the size of it, is in the short term, uh, bringing on additional gates because they believe they're based on their, you know, the capacity, they were already, um, they already need to grow like now. So Chris, a side note, I've having worked on a lot of antitrust issues over the years, I think JetBlue uh, would argue that they're not going to be dominant anywhere. Um, antitrust lawyers don't like that word, but I get your point that they're going to be the uh, the top carrier with a combined JetBlue spirit operation there. You know, and that leads to the next question with regard to where is the airport hoping to go with their mix? We think of it so much as a leisure destination, but it's really a huge business travel market. So how are they going to be able to meet the demands of a growing business market in the context of this new facility, the technology? It's getting lots of reviews about some of these investments, but tell us about the passenger experience, especially for a, a seasoned business traveler. Well, I think you make the the uh, you know the point very well, Chris. I mean, there's 31 airlines serving 119 destinations, and of those, there's 85 domestic and 39 international airports, and they've had ex- massive growth. Certainly, even during the pandemic, they've added like 15 new city pairs, and internationally, they've added. You know, they've always been a favorite with you know the UK, Brazil, Mexico, but they've even added you know uh, Dubai and Edinburgh and Heathrow and St. Martin, so they're attracting a large international level of traffic that they didn't have before. Even Hawaiian experimented. It did not work, but, you know, they had the extra lift during COVID to nonstops to Hawaii. And according to the Orlando folks, beyond the convention business, based on a lot of the catchment area of, you know, the tech that's developing around, you know, uh, Kennedy Space Center, Titusville, and a lot of other, you know, corporations, they are actually uh, seeing an increase in, you know, almost the, they say the analogy is like Las Vegas, the way in the Nevada area in Las Vegas, there's actually attracted a number of corporate offices. And so they actually believe they're going to have a pretty strong outgrowth. Um, they've got campaigns going on to attract Asian carers, and they felt and feel they're actually pretty close uh, to that. So it's the point that you're making is that international has grown so much, but they view the because the business friendly climate of Florida and Orlando in particular is you know, becoming a worldwide, you know, gateway. 
Well, Chris, talk about the passenger experience and the new technology. We've heard that it's going to be great. If you're dropped off at this airport or you drive in, do you still take a train out to this new terminal? How does it all work? Well, I mean, you know, if you kind of look back, uh, 40 years ago, Orlando launched this very unique uh, configuration. Uh, Tampa was the first, but Orlando's the second, where you have this, as you point out, this landside, and it was almost like it's like a it's an atrium, and there's a hotel built into it, an amazing number of restaurants, and then you have trains that actually go out to airside. They have basically two terminals, A and B, that actually connect out to the various satellites, and that's been the model there. And what's different here is that obviously the last new terminal was open, you know, 20 years ago. So what they've done here is they actually have a train that connects terminal AB with what this is called, which is this is called the New South Terminal C. And that terminal is a full on, I mean, it literally is a standalone airside landside configuration. It's not just a, you know, another concourse. It is full check-in arrivals, CBP, immigration, baggage it is the full monty and it's connected by this train which they're very very proud of and it's very interesting so it has its own parking garage it has its own facility and unlike the airport mco it is the airside land side are not separated by a by a train um what is interesting there from a passenger experience is they claim this is the world or america's certainly first fully intermodal transport and i'm like well a lot of people throw that around what does that mean and they have a train station literally right outside the South Terminal, which connects Brightline, which is the train that's going to be running between Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Palm Beach, and Orlando. They have the SunRail. They have the APM People Mover that connects you to the rest of the airport. And they're working on a light rail uh, directly into downtown in the convention center, plus obviously rental cars and all that thing. So there's this unique hub there. And it's distant. It's like a two two miles off from the main terminal. I mean, it's a pretty distant facility. But... I have to say my impressions of it were, um, it is a showstopper. I thought I had landed, I was like, am I in Istanbul or am I in Dubai or am I in Orlando? These guys really spared no expense and then they flipped, you know, I can describe this, but they flipped the whole notion of, of the airport and the layout really on its head. I mean, it's an upside down cake. It's, it's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, you really don't think of Florida as an intermodal leader, and I don't mean that as a criticism. You think of you know the airport, you think of cruise ships, you think of highways, you know, kind of singularly. You really don't think of trains that much. So those investments are going to be important for them moving forward. Do they expect business travelers to tap into this intermodalism, or who are the who are the potential customers? Well, that's a great question. I mean, it's it's both because, um, you know, the SunRail runs up the base of the I-4 corridor running, you know, uh, as they expand it, you know, Tampa, uh, northeast to Orlando, and then into uh, the eastern parts of the, the catchment area. So that's where there's been a lot of growth. So they expect to tap into that. But the also the notion is, you know, the Brightline, the Brightline originally at one point was going to go into Disney, but they're still trying to create connectivity into the theme parks as well as to downtown for business and the convention center. So, I mean, I'm a Floridian and you're totally right. Uh, we're, uh, we live in our cars, so they clearly have a different vision here, but it is much more of a business centric vision. And they also point out, you know, you know, Orlando's the largest uh, market and airport in the country, not dominated by a single carrier. And, you know, there's no quote hub carrier Delta closed its hub in 2007. And I think they look at the growth you know, as some of these, uh, you know, I, there's no secret. I mean, if you know, JetBlue is scales up and becomes more, uh, you know, larger and attracts more of that business audience, that is a boon for them. And so, again, these guys did not skimp. I mean, they hired Fentress Architects who did, you know, the, Tom Bradley, the new t Tibet. They did Sol Inchon. I mean, it is, they created what they call this branded thing called the Orlando Experience. Their whole thing, the whole premise is, we want you to land in this airport and we want you to have a sense of place immediately where you are. And they look at the airport as a destination in itself. And beyond that, the thing they look at is Orlando on its own right has become this aviation cluster with all the bases from the LCCs and JetBlue University and uh, that as well. So they view this as kind of very much of a something as a badge to attract 
the kind of technology and the higher level corporate business that Orlando has not been known for in the past. More about the new Orlando airport facilities in just a moment, but we want to remind you that if you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operation. Well, you know, Chris, one of the more popular narratives coming out of the big three airlines these days is this concept of blended travel. Some call it leisure travel. Um, Some are saying that this could represent up to 50% of all travel in the future where people are combining business and leisure trips. It seems to me that Orlando is the perfect kind of location for that. So it's possible that some of this intermodality will be great because you could potentially be going there for business, but bring your family who could go off and do things during the day while you're at the convention center, right? And then you all get together in the evening and do things and maybe come a few days early or stay a few days late to go to Disney or maybe take the train down to Miami or something. Yeah, I think you're totally you're totally right in that respect. I mean, Orlando has become they 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 talk a lot about this, uh, and even some of the new carriers that have come in, Avello and Breeze, have talked a lot about how people in the Northeast own second homes there, and they are you know in the work from home or this new hybrid blended leisure segment that really plays to their their strengths. But it really is a unique place. I mean, after a while, you know, you you do see these glistening you know temples and Parthenons to uh, aviation but this one they did a lot of things that are really really different and took some risks so you know if if you don't mind i'd love to kind of share some of the things that are unique about this place that i haven't seen before please do you know first off they really flipped the script on what an airport is usually the emphasis is on the departures and less on the arrivals and in this 9-11 age i mean the idea with self-check-in and automation and biometrics. The idea is you want to get through departures and ticketing and check-in as quick as you can. I mean, often you're bypassing that. And so usually that's the, that in the old days, that was the theater of of an airport. And and certainly in the current Orlando airport, it is theater. I mean, you have this, it looks like you're in a mall. In this place, the actual departures is impressive. I mean, it's a massive automated 14 line, I believe TSA line, very automated, very fast, all common space. Uh, shared space in terms of ticketing and departures, but that's not really the the wow factor. So usually the lower level is, and the one that's kind of just an afterthought is arrivals. In their case, arrivals is on top of departures. So there's like a seven-story atrium. And when you come out of arrivals, they look at that as the front door of Florida. That is the That is where they begin really putting on the show. And the show is, there's a, they've commissioned so much experiential signage and graphics and soaring four-story high baggage claim and you've got trees and natural light and windows and and a a customs border uh you know uh, protection which is very unique in that you actually claim your bags before you go through immigration so that happens much quicker and more seamlessly so they want to send a message to the world that coming to this place is that they call it the orlando experience you immediately have arrived here in florida and so it's a very very different uh, experience in not only Orlando, but that the actual arrivals notion is really the star of the show. And it's usually, again, it's usually an afterthought. And that's where they believe you make your first impression. And um, so I found that uh, alone very, very impressive. I mean, it, I don't know. I thought the new LA, uh, the new LA Rams stadium was impressive with all of its halo screens and experiential signage. And it is, but this this takes that to the next level. I mean, the type of, it, it's a sports sports arena, even on steroids and, um, and, the tech, and the technology that supports that. So visually, it's a crazy, vibrant show place. I mean, it makes a statement, in my view, the only thing I've seen make a statement. I mean, LaGuardia is certainly impressive and the new Tibet in LAX, but this as a full integrated package, uh, 
I, it was certainly once you see it in, in person, uh, made much more of a statement um, than I would have expected. And even down to the, the luggage ride, I mean, the, I call it the luggage ride, but it's like, yeah, Disney's all about, you know, what's that e-ticket ride? I mean, I would love to go riding in the luggage system. That was mind blowing. It's like, it is a, they basically are saying that within the construct of the baggage system, this Dutch developed RFID system that it's almost, they dare you, it's almost impossible to lose a bag. It's the same kind of technology that runs the FedEx, like the FedEx sorting hubs. And even to that point, they've gone so far as to think ahead and say, okay, a lot of people who are traveling internationally have early checkouts at their hotel. They got to leave around noon and they get to the airport really early and they're hauling around all these suitcases. And oftentimes it's before the ticket counter is open. So what if we could actually do like an early automated check-in where your bags could all be stored in this, it literally is like the size of two Costco warehouses with like robotic arms and it's like baggage storage for airlines like the kind that like opt in for TSA, you can opt in for the storage. So instead of having to haul your bags there for hours while you're in this limbo mode before you leave, it's all stored. And yet that actually takes pressure off the build out of the main baggage sorting facility and less labor and is more environmentally sustainable. So it's this virtuous cycle they've created for passenger experience, for the environment and for cost. And so that's why you know, you look at this and you're like, I mean, New Orleans, very impressive. That was a billion dollars. This is $2.8 billion just for this terminal and it's fewer gates. So um, this of anything I've seen in this country, this terminal was terminal of the future. So Chris, the, you know, the, my observation on Orlando is that the main terminal is very well done in the context of shopping and eating and other facilities. It sounds like this new terminal is fabulous, but when you get out to the, take those trains out to the existing piers, it's kind of dreary out there. Does this make it look drearier or are there plans to spruce up uh, the other terminals where most of the carriers operate? That's a great question. I mean, this certainly is, there's nothing dreary about this. I mean, this, you walk in and there's a seven story, eight story high glass atrium, the entire natural light in the, they branded this, they call it the uh, like town square and Palm square. And that's where, unlike the current terminal, all the restaurants and stores and the Disney store and the universal store and all these really interesting, like experiential, you know, multimedia video exhibits where you can actually interact. That's all behind security now. Um, and that's where they expect you to spend your time and spend your money and pay for this thing with concessions. And the gates are literally massive. But yet they are all like there's there's kind of gathering places with multi-fiber 5G like Wi-Fi spread out. So it's a it is an experience um, once you get past security, unlike what you're describing now, which you're you're totally right. You get in there and there are these there's these kind of atriums. But then once you get on the concourses, they're kind of narrow and dark and kind of I wouldn't say depressing, but that's a, a fair assessment. So they basically took the learnings of what an airport of the future is like now where most of it exists behind security, um, but as far, and, and employment in here, but as far as kind of what the future, uh, as, uh, that's a great question. We'd have to ask them as if they're going to renovate the um, the actual uh, concourses in the air side. Um, but you're, you're right. Once you get on the, past the trains, it becomes quickly a pretty normal, a uh, little depressing out there. Well, Chris, you told me once that Miami was where the future goes to rehearse. Are you now saying that for airlines, it's Orlando? <laughs> I mean, it depends. Do you think the future is a scary thing or a good thing? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I say the city of Miami is where the future comes to rehearse, but there's no doubt that they've created something here that is a prototype. I mean, I was talking to the, the architect, leading architect of the airport, and he felt like, this wasn't just kind of America's iteration of like a great international gateway, but this was, uh, this is going to set a standard that we don't hear this often that international airports, you know, will, uh, will copy. And so it's really impressive. I mean, I want to say like one other thing that I thought kind of blew me away about this. I didn't even think about, but it's like, you know, th this is a very distant terminal. I believe it's feel, it seems, seems like it's a couple of miles or a mile and a half away from the main terminal and also air traffic control, it does not have a ramp control tower and they cannot see the details necessarily of the ramp from that area. So what they've done here is they've created all these uh, high definition 4K video cameras virtually everywhere and they've created a virtual ramp control. So they can control it. They're controlling the ramp from the distant tower without having anybody there. So that's all virtual. 
and augmented reality. And then when you're on the ramp, they have massive like halo screens like you'd find in an NFL stadium that have live status for the pilots and the ramp crew. And the pilots can block in unattended without any kind of rampers. And you talk, they talk a lot about, you know, the amount of labor and people involved in the automated boarding with biometrics. And so when I, they talk about this being airport of the future, they've really gone to a lot of trouble, I think, to future proof it and, uh, you know, and look to an era where, you know, it matters and costs matter. And I mean, God help them when the power goes out, but they swear up and down, you know, the amount there, it's kind of crazy. I mean, they could conceivably have their first test of uh, how this thing performs in a hurricane uh, this week. So, uh, but that in many ways, like every part of it felt uh, kind of airport of the future where the future comes to her. So I asked them, I said, after you guys pull this thing off and this opens, you know, it's like, you feel like you won the Super Bowl. What are you gonna do? And they're like, we're gonna go to Disneyland. Wait, we can't say it. We're gonna go to Disney World. They were like, it's been clearly a, a, a real unfolding um, labor of love. But, um, you know, I think they've created trends that we're gonna see. Um, they view that as, trends that are going to be important internationally. They think they've taken international lead here. So, Chris, before we let you go, and I don't want to be a downer here, but it seems like this is a fabulous new facility. But it's only going to really pay back if Orlando gets more and more traffic. So do you think they're going to pair this physical development with a multi-year marketing effort that will ultimately result in more business meetings being held in Orlando and even more leisure traffic looking at Orlando as the go-to place? Well, I mean, the way they view it is uh, they view that this airport has is forty billion dollars of annual impact in the in the in the region, and with the you know fact that we have no income tax, a business friendly climate, and this huge demand and lifestyle working hybrid, the thing you're you know leisure traffic, the current facility as it exists was only equipped to handle twenty four million, and that's the with the last expansion, before twenty nineteen, they were at nearly fifty million. They are now you know they surpassed Miami as the busiest airport in the. Uh, in the state. And now what they say, they've, they've gone beyond what they can actually do. They, they have no more capacity. And so their point is, is that even in 2022, uh, so far, uh, by, by June, they had already eclipsed where they were in 2021. And so if you, you know, from their point of perspective, they were already double, they've, you know, with this overlaid, the original terminal is built down to 24. This handles 12. That's 36. Well, they're already nearly 50 million already. So there's urgency uh, to fill. You know, they feel it's going to be pretty busy even with this additional capacity they've added. So um, I think, I don't know, their, their runway seems pretty, uh, pretty, pretty long. And, and, and last point, I mean, they, you know, Avalo, who's coming in or Bello, is going to be serving 50 nonstop destinations and base 10 aircraft there. So the growth is just super exploding and they feel that um i wouldn't say they feel they're behind the curve but there's a sense of urgency that we're kind of just beginning with this expansion well thank you very much chris we appreciate the fact that you go to these kinds of events that you come and tell all of our listeners about them and we look to have you back again real soon on your next big adventure thanks guys i love being on the show and uh and uh, this was uh, definitely an, a fun e-ticket ride. Um, uh, this airport might actually become a, the hap, one of the hap, truly, as they, they think, maybe one of the happiest places on earth, which you never hear words happy in airport in the same sentence. They might have cracked it here. <laughs> well, safe travels, Chris. We'll talk to you soon. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Good to have Chris Sloan drop in for a visit, and now we'll take some listener questions. Please keep your questions coming via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts to submit your comment or question. Ben, we've got a question from Yoni in Seattle. He's writing about one of your recent Forbes commentaries. 
Hello, Ben and Chris. Ben, during one of your recent Forbes articles, you mentioned that airlines can save money outsourcing non-core activities like maintenance. However, Lufthansa and Delta come to mind as airlines with huge MRO programs and actually insourcing work from other airlines. For example, Delta not only rebuilds their own engines, but does so for FedEx. Are they only able to do this profitably because they are non-union? They also own a fuel refinery. Curious about your thoughts on this as always. Thanks, Yoni. Good question, Yoni. You know, Delta does a good job and Delta Tech Ops is a legitimately huge company on its own, which does lots of work for Delta and other airlines as well. But they can compete in that business because they have the scale and the resources to be able to compete in that business. When I talked about airlines outsourcing non-core activities, I was referring largely to the things they have to do where they don't necessarily have all the resources and competencies to do that. You probably need much more IT infrastructure and people if you're running an airline than you're able to hire just to work for that airline. You may or may not be able to get all the accountants you need to process the the financials correctly. On the maintenance side, in some places, maybe you can build the scale to do that yourself. But if you haven't done that, it might be more efficient to go to a company that has, even if that company is another airline like a Lufthansa or a Delta. The key in sort of what I wrote about there was non-core activities. I would say that for Delta and Lufthansa, technical operations and MRO programs are core to what those two companies are. But for many airlines, they're not. And so I stick to the idea that outsourcing non-core activities can allow the airline to focus on what their core is, which is transporting people and goods safely and reliably. And then Jeff from Minneapolis writes, Hi, Ben and Chris. Great content every week, so thanks for what you do. I recently had a friend buy round-trip tickets from Germany to the U.S. in Germany. After scoping their flights, they proceeded to check out and elected to use an American credit card for their purchase. They were surprised to find the fare changed after entering their credit card information. They decided to call the company and discover that their original fare was based on a European credit card and that there is an additional surcharge with the American credit card. They quickly reverted to a a European card and secured their ticket at the original price. Why is there a difference in cost between an American versus European credit card? What is involved with listing a fare at one price in Europe at a different or higher price in the U.S.? This is a great question, Jeff, and there's a lot in here, some of which I think is directly related to your question, some is ancillary to that, but let's talk about it all. First of all, many global airlines do what is called point-of-sale pricing, meaning they may have a different price point for a flight if you're buying in one country or another country. Back in 2019, my family and I took a vacation to Vietnam, spent a couple weeks there. We worked with a great travel agent who helped us sort of put together what we thought was a wonderful program. But they told us, you know, you're going to need to fly a couple times within Vietnam and we can buy those tickets for you. But if you buy them yourself before you leave, you will get a better price than I can get. And that didn't surprise me. They could have said nothing and just bought the tickets and we would they'd have made money selling us those too. But one reason I like this travel agent is they don't think like that. But the point is point of sale pricing is used in part because of different price elasticities that people have on different sides. 
or just different in competitive market positioning or things like that. In the U.S., Delta is a very strong airline. In some places they fly internationally, they're not that big. So they may be willing to charge differently to attract customers there than they need to in the U.S. Now, in your case or your friend's case, I don't think you're talking about actually getting a different fare. You're talking about the fact that they had a different credit card charge. And that almost certainly comes to the deal that their credit card processor has, which is the bank that manages the transaction, how the airline gets money from the credit card supplier, when they get it, and things like that. And all I can think in this case is that the American card had more costs associated with that. One of those is what's called the interchange rate. The interchange rate is the rate that all retailers who accept credit cards pay. When you go to Dunkin' Donuts and buy a donut with a credit card or whether you go to American Airlines and buy a ticket, the airline or the donut company pays a percentage of that to the credit card company. That's called the interchange rate. It's possible that the American rates are higher than the European rates. It's also possible that the financing costs of the program on the American card is different than in European. That could be a function of regulations or other things. So I think there's a lot of reasons that one card could be more expensive than the other. And since they were buying from Germany, they sort of made the default to assume it was going to be a European card and assumed what those costs would be in that charge but when they realized it was going to be an American card, updated that. So I think it's great that they got their original fare when they went back to the European card. But there's a lot of money that flows between airlines and credit card companies. And it's very understandable and realistic to me that a credit card in one location might have different economics around it than one in somewhere else. Chris, did I miss something on this? No, I think you covered it. The only other thing I would add is for a U.S. credit card being transacted in Europe or in any other part of the world, you're probably going to lose that while many credit cards now no longer have uh, an international transaction fee. They don't always give the most favorable exchange rate. So, you know, I think a lot of seasoned travelers know always transact in the local currency. Don't choose the, do you want, you know, if you're at a restaurant in Europe, don't choose the American dollar price because you're getting an unfavorable conversion of foreign exchange rate. And so that U.S. card might have defaulted to U.S. dollars and had an unfavorable exchange rate, which would have been a lot more expensive than a dinner, for example. So if it was a couple thousand dollars and that exchange rate was unfavorable, it might have been somewhat significant in the price point difference. So can't fully guess um, based on the information, but again, choosing the currency could impact the price as well. That's a great point, Chris, and I'm sure you're right about that. Well, Chris, we've got a finer wine from Ben in Paris. My mom was booked on Air France to fly from Paris to Boston, and my wife was booked on Air France on the same trip, Boston, Paris. I know they were both scheduled to fly on the same aircraft because there is only one Air France Boeing 789 that turns in Boston. This guy sounds like he knows the industry somewhat since he used that language. But seven hours before departure, we received email notification that my mom's Boston, Paris flight was retimed. That means delayed two and a half hours. Fast forward 10 hours and my mom is en route to Boston, but the return flight still shows on time on the Air France app, the Air France website, Expert Flyer, and FlightAware. In the meantime, I convinced Air France to rebook my wife on an earlier Delta flight from Boston to Paris. The earliest notification we could find that the Air France return was indeed delayed was on the FIDs in Boston. Those are the 
those are the screens that show the flight information. FIDS is flight information display system. Most of our listeners probably know that. Is it fine for airlines not to notify passengers of likely delays like this? Air France Delta had not one, but two earlier nonstops tonight, Boston, Paris, with open seats. So not notifying passengers till close to departure surely meant misconnections that could have been avoided. So Ben, Ben the listener, not Ben, my co-host. Ben, um, it is not BN for Air France to do this. It is very fine for you to complain about it. Basically, you caught them in either some laziness or IT laziness and malfunction, but this is, was easily obtained information that should have been conveyed very clearly to customers and passengers well ahead of time. So you caught them. Uh, shame on you, Air France. You should have done better. And thanks for bringing this to our attention. Well, as we start to shut down, it's time for shout outs. And my shout out this week is to our past guest, Linda Rutherford at Southwest Airlines. Southwest announced some management changes this past week, and Linda continues to grow her role and influence, as she should, with her promotion to Chief Administration and Communications Officer, continuing to lead communications and HR, but now adding technology and internal audit departments. Linda is a terrific leader. Her interview with us last year was one of the highest-rated shows of the podcast, and this is all well-deserved, so congratulations, Linda. Great shout out and congratulations to Linda as well. Funny, Chris, my shout out was also going to be about Southwest, but about the fact that Bob Jordan, who's the CEO of the company, would also become the president of the company upon the retirement of Michael G. Vandeven, who had been their president and chief operating officer. I think it's a great message for all companies, but certainly all airlines, that when there are changes at the top, you want to give big jobs to big people, and you don't need to just replace everybody as they leave. You can say, who do we have and how do we try to make this work, maybe with fewer total people. So it's a great message for a time when we need good people everywhere. And it's a great sort of management lesson that I think Southwest is teaching the industry as well. Agreed. So with that, we're going to say goodbye. Thanks for joining us. And we look forward to having you back here next week. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.